Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. If you like what you hear, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Today is Monday, May 24th, and I would like to introduce two recurring guests. This is Bill Chang. What's up? And Nick Rodman. So we would also like to shout out to both Ben and Dan, who are not here. Dan specifically, because he welcomed young Theodore Arthur Beckshaw into the world last night. So welcome to the world, Theo. (laughs) Um, Okay, so to start, I would like to talk about geopolitics. This is Nick's favorite topic. This is what Nick was born to do. Um, So to start us off, I was reading somewhere that because everywhere in the world is now spending a lot on uh, infusions, cash infusions, or basically taking on more debt, that inflation is likely to rise. Is that true? What does that mean for the world economy, Bill? Um, So I think when I looked into this, um, during this crisis towards the beginning, the one thing that shocked me was that there is no consensus on what causes inflation in the medium term. Mm. Um, in the long term, we have pretty good data and wide consensus that it is through the massive printing of money. But in the, in the short to medium term, there is just no way to know. Um, and, the, and the reason for that is, suppose you print, say, like a trillion dollars and then you write checks to everyone in the in the short term, you, you really don't know how people are going to behave when they receive this money. They might feel panicked, so they might just put 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 all the money in the bank or stuff it under their mattress. They might uh, fear that they're gonna run out of toilet paper. So everyone goes and buys toilet paper, which would cause inflation for toilet paper, but nothing else. So because you really don't know how people are going to act, uh, there is no way to really predict what, what will happen. On top of that, the other issue is that the majority of the money money as in just what people use to, to make economic transactions, the majority of the money, what I've heard is like 99% is through uh, loans and debt, through credit. So it's not cash that people have, but it's through credit that people make these transactions. So even if you print, say, a trillion dollars, if the amount of credit in the economy far outweighs that this printing will have very little effect. With that said, um, history has shown when when you print a lot of money, uh, if it gets out of control, you, you can have some major problems. So how do we see this then influencing something like um, our repayment of our debt? So when we when we're printing money, we the, the Fed is basically just um, allowing banks to borrow more money that are then lending more money. What usually happens is the the Fed will print a lot of money, and then the government will borrow this money in in forms of bonds, and then use that to send to people. Basically, the. Uh, the Fed is just allowing more money to be put into the economy. It's just an extra zeros being added to an account ledger. Yeah, it's 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 as simple as just giving, just injecting more dollars into it. It's equivalent to printing paper money and just handing it out to people. Because so, what what this what the goal of something like this is. You, you do not want a situation where people are willing to buy things and people are willing to work to make things. And the only thing preventing the, that from happening is this abstract financial tool of this paper 
that being in existence. So you don't want that to be like an artificial constraint for productive economic activity from taking place. Aren't we also then, this is what I never quite understand, when when a country is deeply in debt, so we also have a lot of debt to repay, how do we then have money to also stimulate the economy and where exactly does it come from? So we, we have the debt that we have are just, um, say, China or, I don't know, like Greece or Spain or pretty much any country, Japan, like any country in the world, when, when they're willing to borrow money from the U.S. government, say, at like very cheap rates, 1%, 2%, the U.S. government just borrows the, borrows the money to these countries and that's where debt comes from. And then the government, once you get the money, you can do whatever you want with it. You can you can buy stuff, you can give it to people, you can make investments. Um, and as long as your income, national income, is growing at a faster rate than the interest rate um, over a long period, you might have like short-term fluctuations over a long period, you're always going to pay this money back. And it's attractive at times because, it, you know, say, say like the government needs to build a bridge. Once the bridge is built, um, people, you know, use the tolls or they pay tax and you can get a return of 5% on this bridge. But when, when your interest rate is only 1%, it's, it's a really good deal. So mm-hmm. it's always these transactions taking place on, on the on the second basis, minute basis, hourly basis, monthly basis, yearly basis, um, dec- over periods of decades, all of those transactions are happening all the time. So basically people are willing to buy government American treasury bonds. So there's mm-hmm. money constantly coming into the economy all the time. Right. So isn't right. that, doesn't that make it an easy money type situation, which isn't, isn't that the ripe environment for inflation again? That's another source of inflation. Yeah. So, so the a lot of the uh, maybe the argument, the consensus, where where the where the conclusion is that a lot of times, what's unfortunate um, is that suppose you're borrowing money at one percent, but you don't have any good investment opportunities, then you have an excess amount of money that you need to you need to do something with them. So suppose I gave you $50,000 and you, you, f- you just feel the need, like I need to invest this in something. So do you invest it in stocks? Do you invest it in real estate? You're going to go and invest this money in what you think is the most attractive. Unfortunately, for, most, for many Americans in the 2000s, what was the most attractive thing was investing in real estate. And when that bubble crashed, you know, people were forced to pay back money that that they borrowed um, without having made actual productive investments with them. So, so the argument is when you when you do have these cheap debt and you don't have good investment opportunities, they have a, the potential to create these bubbles. So it seems like we're running toward a massive bubble because aren't we as a country? What are we producing really at this point? economy the tech industry um so one thing because the u.s has a like a a trade deficit like a long run not long run but like a persistent deficit it does mean that as a country more money is leaving we're spending more than what um we're spending more than what we're make selling to other people and then what's happening is all of the money that we're spending to the other countries that they're getting more so other countries are getting more us dollars than they're spending and then they're taking these us dollars and then reinvesting it in us bonds doesn't i thought trade deficits indicate a sign of health in the us economy it's like more america if there is a trade surplus less americans are buying Anything. Yeah, so so I think yeah, that's that's been the debate. That that's gonna be maybe the debate is 
what is better? Do you want to buy cheaper things or do you want to have more people working? And, and I think a, a lot of people would argue like there's the only, there isn't one isn't better than the other. It, that really comes down to the values of the people. Like, does it feel better to buy cheaper things or does it feel better to be able to work as a furniture builder? But do you think those are real choices? Like, do you think that a lot of those people's jobs have been lost to automation versus outsourcing? Yeah. The market? Um, for the individual, it is not a choice, for sure. But as a, as a policymaker or as a group of policymaker, because what the U.S. could do is you you can you can just pass a law saying like China, you just can't borrow, keep buying bonds. Like we're not going to sell them to you. Right. Like you can you can make that happen. We um, don't sell weapons to the Chinese since the Tiananmen Square incident. I, I, I mean, not weapons. Bonds. Yeah, I meant bonds. bonds. Oh, bonds. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Wait, I don't think the U.S. Would... You want to talk about U.S. Uh, munitions? No, sorry. Maybe? Sorry. Yeah. No. No, you're no, right. no. No. Yeah. So, so, so if you do work, I mean, there are many ways to do this, but that's like maybe the most direct way, but you can also, you know, artificially inflate your, you can just charge, like, we're only going to sell you our bonds if you pay us 10%, then nobody's going to buy them. Um, you can find ways to depreciate your currency um, in order to boost your labor economy. All of these are within the capabilities of policymakers. But the, the real question is for them and for the people who vote for them um, over the long term, the decision is, is it better to have cheaper things or is it better to have a job? And, and Nick, I think you brought yeah. a good point. Domestically speaking, it's also becoming a problem domestic because the jobs that exist in the domestic economy isn't getting replaced by foreigners is get, getting replaced by machines too yeah. with with the same argument that these machines can do the jobs cheaper the downside is people will lose their jobs yeah no and that's a valid um that's a valid point i think that certainly in like the free trade debate mm -hmm. um, when the u.s makes a free trade agreement uh, there's always a huge hubbaloo in Congress from both parties about how this impacts our district. Um, but a lot of times, I think there's an animosity, especially like around NAFTA and a lot of these previous agreements, like multilateral agreements, um, that, you know, these agreements took, took jobs away and, and killed jobs. And there's truth to that. I think like certain free trade agreements decimated the textile industry in the Carolinas or mm -hmm. Massachusetts even, but... I also think that they've created jobs and like NAFTA created a huge number, a surge in U.S. trucking jobs in the, in the United States. Okay. And from a net net positive, I think a lot of economic assessments indicate that it created more jobs than it took away. But it, it, it just, people don't feel, people don't necessarily see those jobs um, in that correlation to NAFTA, but they also see those jobs that are getting killed by NAFTA. They, they're much more visible. So wait, question going back to because this still never quite makes sense to me. So if China, if if the or if the, if not just China, if the entire world market of American bond buyers decided to stop re-upping their purchases of bonds, and every bond that's currently outstanding just had to come true, and America had to repay those debts, mm -hmm. where where would the money come from? Could we print the money? And if we did, then wouldn't there be massive inflation? We can print the money for sure. Yeah, the, what, that's one way. Another w way is we can take the money that we have and through our increases in productivity basically means we're making more money from these countries by selling them actual goods. We can use that money to pay it back as well. It's like the, the old fashioned way, the yeah. keeping it real way. Um, it, it will, definitely you can print money to pay those back. And I think, you know, within reason, that's not really a bad thing either. Like, if you know, if, if, if China thought well, it's when these countries are making these decisions to buy U.S. bonds, it's not out of the any sense of goodwill to help America. Like these are banks making deals, basically. It's just 
given my set of choices of what investments can, I can make, what will give me the safest investment? And that just happens to be the U.S. dollar or U.S. government bonds. Um, so it, could we see a future with the with? It seems like the coronavirus has shown all, shown two things that are going on. One is that the problems, the animosities between the U.S. and China mm-hmm. run very deep. Like the the Democrats are now just on or seem to be as on board a lot of the times as. Donald Trump is with all of his anti-China rhetoric, but also mm-hmm. that the economies are so crazily tied together from everything from yeah. the financial system to even making cotton swabs to making chemicals that go to the to hospitals to regulating things like the W the wealth, the world health organization. Right. So I'm trying to just think about what in different sectors these, a decoupling would even look like and how that might have a, a, a effects on other sectors. And it seems like the first thing that would go would be the financial sector, that somehow China would, would I don't know, manipulate its currency and then also stop taking bonds. Or I'm trying to imagine this, uh, yeah. this, uh, this near and impending apocalypse scenario. So... One thing that has gotten into the debate, and I I think it'll become mainstream, is that it is good for both countries to have more of a balanced trade. That that will be good for both countries because what the situation for China now is, you're like, imagine, like there was this this thought, like if if you owe someone a hundred dollars, you know, they kind of, they can make it a little bit uncomfortable for for you. Like they kind of own you a little bit. But if you owe them a million dollars, they're the ones who have to be nice to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, like, so, like there's so much of China's accumulated wealth through actual production and sales of goods is in the form of U.S. government bonds. So, so the U.S. has direct control over that. That's not a situation you want to be in, like if any if you're in any country, even personally. Um, internally, China is trying to make the transition from a export-driven economy to a more consumption-driven economy. What this means is instead of making, you know, like toy cars for Walmart that you're selling to America, you know, you you're, you want to make. Um, Chinese fast food restaurants where domestically people can spend. Uh, There are several challenges to this, mainly because the people who have the money now in China who holds the power, maybe not at the very top, but at the provincial level, um, they made their buck by selling to the U.S., their contacts are, their business practice is within this line. And now you're suddenly telling them like, you know, you're not gonna do that, that's, you know, that's make Chinese fast food instead. Even if they want to, they're not gonna know how. So, which means they're just gonna get replaced and nobody wants to, so that to happen. So there, there's a power struggle. The other struggle is all the engineers, toy makers, they're trained as these factory workers but now you're asking them to, you know, become hairdressers and chefs. Like that's not going to take place overnight. So, so I think these are the two major challenges facing China. And and the longer this balance of trade takes place, the worse the situation will happen for China domestically. In the U.S., um, like I'm trying to think about exactly. I just, I guess I don't really understand the animosity in the U.S. Like, I don't understand. If you think about where, where does that come from? Like, towards, uh, towards China. Like, like, um, like what, what, what do you think is, is the root of this problem? Or where did, when did this start? How did it well, start? Well, I think that there's different, there's different things at play. I mean, I do think hmm. that, unfortunately, there is an undercurrent horrendous and sad and and to a certain degree that there is like racist sentiment towards a you know the foreigner the other and that is something that unfortunately periodically 
appears. Like hope, but hope is is that the, is that could that be the main reason? I don't think. I think from a government to government perspective. Yeah. Um. So, the way I look at China, I, I do think that, um, you know, from our relationship starting in 1972 to now, you know, I I ultimately feel that the opening of China. The, the Nixon Kissinger opening of China in 1972 is mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, and I think the Chinese government views it as a good thing and it's mm-hmm. transitioned to a more market capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. The, the animosity I think comes from uh, a, a more of a national security world that I feel like, you know, I, I think that when the coronavirus pandemic first happened, there was an uptick in animosity towards China. And some of that was like racist ignorance and stuff. But I do think that there was a valid criticism of the Chinese government in a, in, in a myriad of, of ways. I think mm-hmm. that I, I'm a proponent of the democratic peace theory. I think democracies tend to get along better with other democracies because they're mm-hmm. transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, concern about China's rise, not from an economic perspective, but from a military perspective. Um, I think that there's... Yeah, like, I, I guess for me, that concern is not empirically driven, I guess. is. Well, I think it is. I mean, I think that concern doesn't just come from the United States. It comes from Australia, Japan, South Korea, um, Vietnam, Singapore even... The Philippines mm-hmm. uh, and the claims over the like the second island chain and just some of the, like the stuff that like in 1996 there was a Taiwanese election mm-hmm. and uh, I think there was a pro independence candidate that almost won and the Chinese fired intermediate range missiles over Taiwan not at Taiwan mm-hmm. as a menacing gesture. Uh, and in response, Bill Clinton sent like an aircraft carrier and a bunch of sh- Navy ships through the Straits of between Taiwan and, and China, mainland China, which prompted the PRC government to kind of like hold back and kind of de-escalate. But mm-hmm. since then, the Chinese military has developed a doctrine called anti-ship uh, A2AD. It's um, essentially uh, anti-axis aerial denial, and the strategy is essentially to prevent that situation from ever happening again to prevent like u.s ships or foreign ships from sailing between them and and taiwan and and other interests in the pacific um and so they've like rapidly modernized their defense budget they like release figures of how much they spend on their military but they don't fully uh release the whole picture like they arm their coast guard uh in a way that we do not arm our coast guard they have like offensive weaponry on their coast guard ships uh, they conduct a lot of, like, SP- increase their espionage activities against the United States and other countries, and I think have increased their aggressiveness towards Taiwan. And the U.S. isn't, like, treaty-bound per se, but under the Taiwan Relations Act, like, we are sort of responsible for, in some ways, the defense of Taiwan against the mainland. Well, wait, that's the question. Is that... Is that gonna? Is, I wonder if that's gonna all be influenced after all of this plays down, or maybe not. The the U.S. military seems to have a strangle grip on the world, but it has always struck me as bizarre that the it's the U.S. military's role to to patrol and keep the the safety of whatever the South China Sea or all these other random places that are not that are are, are only through our military. Control, I guess, because of the the post World War II world and all the treaties that we've signed subsequently. But well, I don't think that's true anymore. So I think I think the countries that are spending rapidly, like in terms on their navies, countries are mostly in the those countries are mostly in the Pacific, Australia, Philippines. But didn't uh, we? I remember during the Obama administration, we opened a military base in Australia, right? It was like uh, the first Marine Corps base in Darwin. Yeah. So it seems like our 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 military continually expands. I mean, it seems like that I've never understood this about geopolitics that 
that there's these shows of aggression. You build a base here, you put these things here to sort of, and it seems like um, the U.S. does play a role in um, amplifying the aggression in all these situations by supplying arms throughout the world and making this this sort of show of arms one place to another. It seems like that we we um, reprimand people for having these sort of arms races against one another, but we are the largest arms supplier in the world. I mean, we supply weapons to countries like Japan, Australia, and the Philippines to a certain degree, but, like, I think it, you know, there are cases where we supply weapons to the wrong people, but I would say the country, the second or third tier countries that supply those weapons tend to be like Russia and China and they have no scruples. Russians have very little scruples as to who they sell their weapons to. I think, well, I think what Seth is trying to say is more from the fact that the U S would be threatened and have, uh, have all of this, anti whether you know like anti china now or like anti japan in the 80s or 90s from the mere fact that china has a policy an aerial policy of some area say even over taiwan where the u.s military is like just a few miles out like that because then like wouldn't by the same logic wouldn't china feel orders of magnitude more threatened i don't think china feels threatened i i think but, that but, but 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 they might not be but then by the same logic wouldn't they be when no because I, I i don't think i think if if that same sentiment that we're feeling of mm-hmm. is being felt in essentially every single country around china with the exception of maybe cambodia mm-hmm. um but if it's being felt in Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, India, Mongolia, it seems seems that like if the U.S. is concerned about the military, China's military rise, mm-hmm. then these all these other countries are concerned about China's military rise. Um, the U.S. every two years organizes this big naval exercise called RIMPAC. Mm-hmm. And the countries that are eager to participate in it are those said countries, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, Vietnam, even. What? So what, what would be their reason for, because like, I, I'm, I'm not like, I have a classmate who's Japanese and this is not what he, this is very inconsistent with what he tells me about how he feels about U.S. military presence in Japan. Um, so I, mean, sure. there's, I think there's, I'm having a hard time reconciling the, like, I don't think. I think that, Nick, yeah. I think that there is a point to be made that not all of these countries necessarily want or are itching for more aggression toward Chinese military apparatus or to be to extend these wars but the US sort of puts it upon them by creating this amplified military situation around the world. I mean, just to step back for a second, if you look at military spending around the world, the US outnumbers the next like 10 or 15 people and then yeah. some on top of it. It's like But that's a false thing. I don't mean to interrupt, but that's a false figure. We spend about $700 billion in authorized monies from Congress to the military. Like 40% of that budget is like TRICARE, BAH, and the Montgomery post-9-11 GI bills. So when you when I join the Russian army, I don't get free housing, free health care, which in our country is super expensive, and free college, which is also super expensive. So well, that, I mean, I'm sure that number would be added on even more if I included the private industry into this. I could go and look at how much the private industry adds on to that to that American war machine around the entire world. But I, I don't I think it's I think really like that that figure is shrunk dramatically when you take away essentially the big entitlement 
programs within the Department of Defense's budget, and that's TRICARE, Base Housing Allowance, BAH, and the post-9-11 and Montgomery GI Bills. Okay, like, I, that's not I would assume... Like, the Russian or Chinese military or Iranian military or French military or British military. But that, well, that figure I... shrinks dramatically if you factor that in. Because, I mean, in terms of what we spend on guns, bullets, tanks, ships, airplanes, the, like, that notion that we have military primacy or superiority over Russia or China is dwindling. I think the Chinese have advanced, like, electronic warfare. They have advanced naval ships. They went from having zero aircraft carriers to two aircraft carriers within, like, a two-year period. So they're, like, their military is is, is modernizing. Yeah, it, it sounds like the... the... Thucydides trap like it, it just sounds to me like that you guys know what I'm talking about what is that like what the, the in the like the what's that guy's name Herodotus during the Peloponnesian War he's like describing the cause of the Peloponnesian War that basically ended Athens dominance in ancient Greece because what happened was there was Athens and Sparta. They were always butting heads. And then, like, one of them started building a military, and then the other one felt like they needed to catch up. And because they just couldn't really communicate, they just built up their military to this to a certain extent that they, they had to go to war against each other. For, for That was, wasn't good for either of them, but it's like this game theory theoretic like prisoner's dilemma and because of that war you know they they destroyed greece and then alexander popped up and you know took over all of them but yeah it it just sounds to me like well it does seem like what was what i found interesting about the obama administration was the pivot toward asia that they that they sort of amped down the the confrontation in the Middle East, especially, and then amped it up in Asia. It was a very bizarre foreign policy strategy. It I mean, was, that's uh, what that, that's what uh, John Mearsheimer was trying to argue for the entire time we were in undergrad, mm-hmm. because because the real threat, like I, I guess, what I don't understand is like exactly where this threat like why can't we just like all kind of just chill out like what what <laughs> well, i would i mean i think i think most people would like that yeah uh, like I, where I just, exactly is the threat but there is the threat like you can, i think you the know? threat comes from the chinese navy in particular like i, I do think that there is but, for, like i mean I, I have like, like family like, in china too because they're they're saying the same thing about america like like but then i'm like like we, we all like you know we're all like watching instagram videos like that's what people do they're not like out to get you you know is instagram uh allowed in like i mean i mean whatever like, <laughs> weibo yeah wechat videos or, you know, <laughs> well, no, it's, it's interesting because like i'm reading a lot about hong kong right now like what what's your take on what's going on in hong kong i don't really have an idea i i've met like i've met a bunch of people from Hong Kong and it's it's crazy there it's crazy because it what I've been told by both sides is you have this split on one hand you have these like super nationalistic like way more nationalistic than anyone in mainland China like we're we're, we're Chinese we have to like defeat the imperialists it's like yeah. still on what happened like a hundred years ago and then the other half is like the other extreme. So like one side is like everything that mainland China does is for the best. Like they know the best. And the other side is the opposite. It's like we're for democracy. Yeah. And everything that China does is wrong. But and so you don't and, think so when you say you they want democracy, that means like freedom of the press, freedom of speech. And are those generally viewed positively in mainland China? Um, freedom, well, I mean, mainland China, like you have thousands of years of Confucian thought where the, the, uh, the primary value system is stability and well-being for the family. So anything else is just 
a process by which you can get that. So whether it be like a benevolent leader, whether it be, be like a democratic process, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Um, historically speaking, you do, historically speaking, it's somewhat of a democratic metaphysical process where the, the primary function of the emperor is to ensure the well-being of the people. And if that's not fulfilled, that he, he has excuse to be toppled where a new imperial family gets to rule China. Um, I think that's quite unique in some ways. Uh, what I see in that is like a term limit sort of checks and balances, but I, I don't see that in the current government in China. The current government in China, I think what what people don't understand about China, like it's 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 China it it takes a while to build a modern state i think i think it takes a while it, it because you have to you have to have you know like um if, if you take any country other than america i guess but even in america's case it took a long time if you take any country in the old world that went from the, this feudal time to like this modern sort of economic driven government um there was like always there, there in every case there was like a struggle of some sort like the french revolution or like the meiji restoration in japan um and in china's case that's happening right now well because you, you have the you know in, in japan they happened like 100 like 50 100 years earlier um so the process by which this happens is the government has to lay out like this is our function like this is what we're allowed to do this is what we're not allowed to do um and then the people kind of have to like voice their acceptance or displeasure in whatever way possible over the period of like generation like a few generations before everybody's on the same page because you think the you, government allows that type of behavior like when i think of the chinese government i mean they have no choice the government has no choice but to acquiesce to some some pressure it, it it's not like I mean, you can you can have an oppressed super like a North Korean type of regime, I guess, for a short amount of time, it, uh, 50 years, maybe um, in China's case, there's no way it's too big. It's like trying to rule over all of Europe like you, you just can't. So you have to acquiesce in some possible way um, that also you have the constraint of like not getting toppled. Um, but also you have to do enough for the people so that, you know, like people have enough to eat. This is a country where when I was growing up there, when you're poor, you're starving to death. Like, I don't think yeah. in America, I don't think people understand that very well. Well, um, yeah. Hopefully so not. Yeah. What, 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 the what it is to have, what mentality places on an on a entire pot, like the, the, the value system. So when you're hungry, when I was studying abroad, like this is what got me. I was like full of, so full of myself. I'm like majoring in economics at the University of Chicago. We're getting taught all these crazy models. Like this is hard to get shit done. And I'm like, yeah, like, fuck yeah. Like this is, <laughs> I, I know, like, let me go to China. Like, let me tell these people what's up, right? Let me tell these people what's up. I'm talking to this lady selling me oranges on the street. And she's saying, I, and then I'm like, yeah, like China needs to like open up. Like you need to just have like the free market and like all this stuff. And she's like, but I don't want that. Like I want to have the government have enough stability. So then I know I'll have enough income, whatever happens until my kid turns 18. So then we know we're always going to be fed like that's her concern like yeah. she's because of the need for survival she's willing to let go of all those things that i held to be the ultimate thing and and to meet someone there who and, and i thought at the time what struck me was like she was totally justified to feel that way mm. To, to, to sacrifice you know, not being able to speak out against the president 
to, you know, see your kid grow up or, or to, to, to spend, um, be consistent, consistently be able to spend dinners with your family who, I, I mean, I have my values, but I, I can't really say that her values are wrong in that case. Like, I don't know what argument I would make to say that my values were better. All I right, Nick, I, you make that case. Make the yeah. case for democracy to that orange seller. Yeah. Well, I think I think they're not. I think stability. I think a lot of times governments that are autocratic use that as an excuse. In the Middle East, it's the same thing. Like Hosni Mubarak. Yeah. Each time he would get a complaint from a human rights organization, he would say, yeah. "It's either me or chaos." Mm-hmm. Après moi le déluge. That's like Louis mm-hmm. the saying. And I think governments use that as an excuse. Like that's, and I, I don't think like. I think Confucian ideals can go hand in hand with democratic values. I see that in Taiwan. It, it, I believe so, 100%. Yeah, for sure. And I think that they're not, it's not one or the other. I think, I, I think China's economic rise is something to be commended and it's like extremely, like a, the, the sheer number of people they lifted out of poverty in a generation is remarkable. That being said, I mean, no government is perfect. The U.S. has some tarnished histories, and I think you know we shouldn't. We should study them. We should acknowledge them, and we should like perpetually try to fix our society, all these ills in our society, and we should be open and honest about them. I think that's huge. And I think countries that aren't open and honest about like some of these flaws in their society tend to, you know, it doesn't usually end well and I, I look at like the 1989 Tiananmen incident I think look at what's going on in Xinjiang with the Uyghur community and I look at what's going on in Hong Kong these are like troubling signs these aren't steps towards a more open and free society these are kind of like yeah what? I yeah no I know what you're saying well I I have a this is like almost a pet peeve but I have I think the Amer- I think people in America don't really understand the Tiananmen Square incident uh, because I know it had a big effect here because it was caught on film and it's it, it fit like the archetype of like Darth Vader or something but in China that was one protest out of a thousand in the past hundred years and it's not even it was like a drop in the bucket for the number of people that died on that square over a period of a hundred years so I, I think at least from my perspective, it's 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 not special to the Chinese case. It's not special for China. It's also not special for the world. Like the, the similar things happened in uh, Korea, where students who are marching just got mowed down by machine guns. Yeah. Um, I think it's 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 been sensationalized to the point where it's counterproductive to actually understand the the actual mistakes of the communist government you don't think it'd be better for the communist government in china to acknowledge like certain things that happened at the, in the Tiananmen square incident and i and think have an honest discussion about what happened and i'm, I'm not sure if they're I mean, ideally, we can all be honest. I'm just not really sure what their. I'm not. I don't understand what their constraints are, um, because I, I think what what caused that incident in, in particular is because they did uh, try to have freedom of speech, and then it got out of hand to the point where, again, like this is a society in the '80s where the, you know, my mom's first job as a college professor, she was making less than five dollars a month so 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 it's i think it's difficult to conceive what that society is like but when when you're at that point um and there is some sort of political force that will bring you back to the 1920s or the 1930s where there's a lot of i guess maybe like democratic progress happening at the cost of millions and tens of millions of lives and people starving to death but i don't i don't think so that's like the thing like, I, people, I think that's the ultimate falsehood because i don't think like they're it's not a, i don't think it's a i think it's a fake choice between economic prosperity and stability and freedom um and you know, you, certain, why do you think it's a choice at, like, this is what's confusing 
it's over the long term, maybe not. But say in a, in a specific instance, of course, like you can have like the coronavirus. We're having this debate right now. Like, do we want to stabilize the entire situation and just shut everything down for a month? Or do we are we willing to risk it because we need people need to go to work and make things? That's actually a good point. So when you have, the, have the answers to that, that debate, that's a good point. Right. So so in that situation, I, I mean, I'm not saying it, it's not like I'm apologizing for the government. Like, trust me, my family have been unimaginably suffered through the communist government. But when things like Tiananmen Square get sensationalized, I think that prevents people from actually acknowledging the real issues. Because at the time, it's like if you, if you read like Deng Xiaoping's biography, he's he's like doing his best to fix all the problems that Mao caused. And it's impossible. Like you have a billion people yeah. that you're trying to get out of poverty and any little thing that could go wrong. Your entire the entire situation gets destabilized. You have another revolution where during the Cultural Revolution, physicists were getting beheaded for studying relativity. Why? Because I don't know. Karl Marx said nothing's relative or something like like when people get crazy, like that's what happens. You have a billion people where 80 percent of them are illiterate. They're just going to follow what sounds good. Any misstep, you're destroyed. So what I've read about the Tiananmen Square protests is the intentions of the protests were good, but it ended up being like a power grab for some of the top students. I don't believe that. I mean, the mean, of China was put under house arrest because he sided with the protesters. What's up? Zhao Ziyang was put under house arrest. He was uh, essentially the right. prime minister. Right. So, so that, so that, ha- so the the protest was basically over. Like they have it under control. There's 300 people there, and then most of them's like, "This is not going anywhere. We're gonna stop." Then one of the leaders, she was like, "No, we can't stop. We're going on a hunger strike." And so the whole thing picked up again. When the when by the time it was out of control. It got out of control. Someone's got to take the fall. Like you have, you have. It's it's a government. It's you have like a political entity that's trying to rule over a billion people. You have so many factions. Each of them is trying to grab power. And any excuse, like it's no different than right. Any excuse that one side has the over the other, they're going for the throat. Right. And Deng Xiaoping sitting at the very top going like, what the fuck? Like, I'm, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? One side is like, just let them talk. The other side is like, no, we need to clamp down. And something went wrong. The one, the side that says we need to clamp down one. So the other side has to fall. And that was the situation, the reality of the time. So, But then you can say, like, do we need a better institutional system like the U.S. by which these debates could occur where the losers don't, their heads won't fall. I think, I think that's, I think that's worth talking about. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, that's the larger point, but it does. It, yeah. I think what's really interesting about this entire conversation is that how in the recent past, how close you said earlier, it was almost like a feudal economy or a, yeah, a feudal, yeah. and how quickly things do change. But the, the rise of China has been crazy and hasn't also, as a um, as a government, it's it's been run sort of like a corporation, setting yearly target goals, being very having these massive plans. I, I know they had like a a, a a massive real real estate development plan as well. Yeah, it's run exactly like a corporation. It has the board of directors that they vote their CEO every ten years or so. But it yeah, like it's difficult to think how stable it is it's difficult to think like i said that the the changes in the economy that they're trying to take place it's difficult to think like what exactly how exactly are they going to get there and there is a a large significant population in china who wants the u.s democratic credit model with it mostly 
in 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 the parts of higher education, the, the more educated class, basically. These people lost a lot of political goodwill when after the Iraq war and after the financial crisis. I think similar to, to a, a large group of people in the U.S. who used to strongly believe in a very free market who was shook by the financial crisis. Um, so I think the problem in China and, and I think in the rest of the world is like we, we don't actually have a great model for, for going forward, at least in terms of the economy. I don't what about politically. Taiwan? Taiwan? What, in they're terms a tiny of, economy. They're not, the, they're not a tiny economy. I mean, compared to the U.S. or China? Yeah, sure. No, that's, yeah. I, mean, I think they're, they're significantly bigger economy than a large number of countries. But I was just saying, yeah. I, I just mean Bill's point that the U.S. did seem to have this pedestal of uh, how to run an economy and a country for a while that has been taken a notch down many, many different times. I was reading this week that, uh, that a lot of European leaders are now turning away from American models on... I think, I think it was mainly economic models, but in terms of also just leadership as well. I think the U.S. has taken a... Th this century has been just a series of blows for us. <laughs> the yes. 21st century? Yeah. 21st yes. century? I, guess yeah. I can't believe it's been 20 years into it. Think yeah, about it. You got 9-11, Katrina, the financial crisis, the global pandemic... The election of Donald Trump. Are you Billy Joel? Uh, yeah. Billy Joel, so we didn't start the fire. <laughs> JFK, float away. <laughs> I heard but in the last, in the last yeah. dance, they really brought brought me back to the '90s when everything was like perfect. Yeah. Jordan, Jordan was on top. Like that was the thing we were most worried about. If Jordan's gonna win Game Seven. And think about it. That was the that was the the height of U.S. Chinese integration. That was when Jordan yeah. Jordan opened the Chinese market in a way that yeah. nobody had ever understood before. Yeah. And now and now the and now they're not even showing. I heard that there were a few, even if the NBA comes back, the Chinese government is not going to show games. Yeah, I think that that whole thing. Like, I think they're being idiots. I think the way that Adam Silver handled it was idiotic. It, I, I was talking to one of my friends about this. It, it just came down to this, like, really, like, this misunderstanding of what each side wants the other side to do. And that cost, like, a trillion dollars. I don't know, a billion dollars, however much money. It seems like these Hong Kong protests aren't going to be going away anytime soon. And that's going to be... Because I, I, I've, I've never understood these protectorate societies which have somewhat like the rules of the constitution are somewhat democratic but they're also not completely democratic and how that that's going to influence things going forward i mean it seems like the chinese are not interested in letting hong kong ever be a democratic it's a and nor would is that even an interest of the hong kong population in general would they if they had like a a whatever you what what, what is that called a um referendum yeah kind of a referendum but there was another word i was going for it's like that they used to use in the middle ages when people would just uh, yeah i'm not really sure like this goes back to what you were saying which earlier nick like like the 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 sentiment of not i i don't i i definitely agree that it's there i just i i guess i have a hard time seeing where it comes from, this distrust of the Chinese government. And like, if, if you subject yourself to its rule, then somehow that will not be good for you. Well, because I think people like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom. But for Hong Kong. People, they have a tradition of having those rights, and those rights but, are going to be taken away if they subject themselves fully to, to the mainland's rule. For Hong Kong, though, they, they, they didn't have those rights under British rule. 
I remember one of my friends telling me that when, when I mean, there were a colony. When you're a colony, you're, you're, you're not treated that, that well. He was saying they couldn't have a, um, when he was growing up there, that they, they, you can't have a group of, uh, it was, I, I think it was either three or five males walking together. Like the, the police will just come and break you guys up. And you, you, if, if, if you have, if you want to protest, you have to like file for permission. Mm. Um, so it, I don't, it doesn't seem like that was the, like the, the, the ideal, I mean, like the ideal case of freedom of speech and being able to freedom to protest. And I mean, when you're a colony, you, you, they didn't get to vote who the prime minister was. Um, they didn't get to vote who their uh, governor, like the colonial governor was. Um, and so, so the institutions, democratic institutions didn't exist for Hong Kong as a colony. I think vis-a-vis the UK, that's certainly true. I think the but internally, the, the, the self-rule was democratic, and I think they did have free press. It does seem like recently it was it got to a level where what was it half of the population yeah. were protesting, but yeah. it's also I they also imagine. their economic. I, I I wonder how much of it is caused by they have like some pretty serious economic problems in Hong Kong. I think partly because of that threat. I think that the the mainland government taking over Hong Kong autonomy and violating the deal they made with the British in 1997, I think would destroy Hong Kong as a financial hub. So I think it these are self-fulfilling prophecies that I think the government in China, it, mainland China, is essentially orchestrating. I mean, I think Hong Kong was functioning quite well from 97 up until, you know, for at least good good 10, 15 years until this movement to further kind of encroach upon Taiwan's autonomy. Wait, Nick, what is your favorite Chinese military airplane? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, there's a J-31 and a J-20, which are their two new stealth fighters. One is called, I think, the Vigorous Dragon. That might be the J-10. The Vigorous what? Dragon? That yeah. sounds like you. What? No, that's not me. It sounds oddly <laughs> sexual. But, yeah, it does. It does yeah. But uh, no, the 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 Chinese military is serious. Um, yeah, they have the ship destroying missiles, right? Yeah, the uh, DF twenty ones. Yeah. No, I mean, I just not, like why not, I have a. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I guess the the military thing is like why have more mil- like we can just strap these nukes to these ICBMs and just let them loose. Like, what's the point of having more? Um, because it, sometimes it's nukes now are you can do things against a nuclear missile country without prompting them to launch, without even prompting them to fire a shot. And I think that's sabotage is a strategy that the Chinese have anti-access aerial denial, and it it's. It's sort of like in military doctrine where you prevent you you achieve an objective without your enemy even firing a single shot. And so that it's like a essentially they'd create like a bubble around Taiwan, which would prevent the U.S. from sending ships within any type of range near Taiwan to rescue Taiwan if the Chinese military invaded. I mean, it's, it's a response to what we did in 96. It would I think it would go a long way if. The government in Beijing increased transparency, checks and balances, and gave its citizenry more and more freedoms. I think you would see a de-escalation of military tension. Do you think that Donald Trump's going to rig the election in the U.S.? Uh, I don't Seems know. Seems like he's going to pull out every stop, man. I'm really, I was, I'm, I'm kind of blown away how this whole thing about him threatening to withhold funding to states that go ahead with mail-in ballots. Mm. You don't think he, he, he'll be hopped up enough on hydrochloroquine to... You think that would inhibit his ability to rig any type of election if he's hopped up on zinc and hydrochloroquine? That's true. It might make him loopy. But he seems to do... what He, he does do really well. 
he seems to have no idea what he's talking about, but then when you like look at the larger picture, he seems to be smarter than you think. So he's playing possum all the time. <laughs> That's a high note. Thank you for listening to What Our Point this week. Again, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Our Point. Feel free to engage if you liked what you heard here or if you have any questions or if you simply think that we're idiots and you totally disagree with everything. Thanks as always and stay safe. Bye now.